The following PTJ podcast is the 2010 Rothstein debate. Healthcare reform. Can we take advantage of different models of care to demonstrate the value of physical therapy? The 2010 Rothstein debate took place at PT 2010, the annual conference and exposition of the American Physical Therapy Association, on June 17, 2010, in Boston, Massachusetts. The participants are Dr. Anthony DeLito, Dr. Alan Jetty, Dr. Colleen Keegan, and Dr. Gail Dial. The moderator is Dr. Gerard Brennan. APTA President Dr. R. Scott Ward introduces the debate. Well, welcome everybody this morning to the 2010 Rothstein debate. I have the opportunity to just do some uh, a quick introduction to this debate, and it's <laughs> it's my favorite thing to do because, well. I'd love to take an hour and a half and tell all the jewel stories I have, but you're not here to hear my jewel stories. You know this event is held in honor of Jules Rothstein, uh, beloved editor-in-chief emeritus of the Physical Therapy Journal. About Jules, I, he never met a point he couldn't argue. And frankly, I would add that he could argue both points. And he would. He'd take one side, and then if you started to come to his side, he'd think you were stupid and take the other side. And so I, I never argued a point with Jules that we didn't argue both sides and always against each other somehow or another. There was never a topic that Jules didn't have an opinion about. And if he agreed with you, he'd obviously just take the other side. He was fearless in his debates. Uh, his final editorial in the journal, for me, has served uh, to provide me with great advice. And he provided these two points. Always allow yourself to be stupid occasionally, which is great advice for me because I've taken that often. And lastly, he, would, he said, leap before you spend too much time looking. And those words of advice, again, have always been important to me among many that I've received from Jules, even though I don't agree with most of what he told me. Do you have anything to say about that, Jules? Now, I can't remember Jules, uh, frankly, ever being stupid exactly. But he did take risks. I, I remember Jules uh, at one point in time we were talking about him coming out to Salt Lake City, and it happened to be, strangely, on the very day that a rare tornado hit downtown Salt Lake City. <laughs> and he said, look, Scott, I like taking risks, but I'm not coming to Salt Lake until you can guarantee me I won't be there when a tornado hits. Uh, Jules was always wonderful. At the same time, he wanted to debate points he was always fearlessly scholarly in his approach to those debates. Somehow or another, he always knew something about the opposite side and would stand up for those who he felt weren't being stood up for, even if he may not fully have agreed with them. So those two things, in my mind, allowing yourself to be stupid occasionally. Now, he always said occasionally, so he wouldn't ever allow anybody to be stupid all the time. And basing your arguments on scholarship might seem a bit contradictory. 
But that was always, frankly, for me, the compelling part of Jules himself, is that Jules was belovedly contradictory, not so much in what he truly believed in, but in his ability to endear us to debate. And that's actually what the spirit of the Rothstein debate is all about. To take risks, to take chances, to talk about things in a stretch from all sides, to go out on a limb for the sake of debate that would lead to what was most important to Jules, and that was the greater discovery that debate can bring. So in that respect, I believe we really honor Jules through that path. With that wisdom from him in mind, I'm very pleased to introduce to you a friend of mine who does the very same thing, who is great at stimulating debate, and we have much of that on our home turf in Salt Lake City. Gerard Brennan, a, a close friend and colleague of mine, is this year's moderator of the Rothstein debate. Gerard is Director of Clinical Quality and Outcomes at Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, and he is also currently serving as Vice President of APTA's research section. Now, before I turn the mic over to Gerard, the reason these particular remarks this morning were important is when Gerard comes up to the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Utah often to meet with a colleague of ours, Dr. Julie Fritz, uh, I, it's very interesting, and Gerard won't remember this, but these points are, are, are poignant for me because Gerard often says to me, you know, when I meet with Julie, sometimes I feel so stupid because Julie's so smart. But you know what Julie says to me? Sometimes when I meet with Gerard, I feel so stupid because <laughs> Gerard is so smart. And I, I think to myself, I can hear Jules laughing and saying, it's okay to be occasionally stupid as long as you're working on smart things. And I appreciate that about Gerard. Gerard is really one of the smartest people I know, but in that light also one of the humblest about his intellect, as are the folks here up on the dais that, that we have the opportunity to hear from this morning. So it is, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to uh, turn this debate over to a good friend, Dr. Gerard Brennan, to uh, lead us in this year's debate. And, and everyone, please enjoy it. I know with these folks here, you will. So Gerard, have fun. Thanks, Thanks Gerard. Scott. You bet. Thank you. I'll try not to be too stupid today. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming this morning, and welcome to the Rothstein debate. Um, it won't necessarily be a debate uh, as we think of it. It'll be more of a panel discussion related to healthcare reform. Can we take advantage of different models of care to demonstrate the value of physical therapy? Uh, I will introduce each of the uh, panel and then give them an opportunity to explain to you what background they come from and a little bit about the healthcare model that uh, they're working in that would be representative. We've tried to, in the panel, 
to represent various types of healthcare delivery models. The debate is being recorded, um, and so if you come to the microphone, please state your name and uh, where you are from so that we have that. Uh, and when you are speaking, obviously, please come to the microphone. <clears throat> I, I'll just start out by telling you um, my role is not only as a moderator, and I'll try to keep us on task and be reasonable in terms of moving the discussion along, but also um, Dr. Delito has asked me to participate in it in the discussion, and I'll try to do that at a reasonable level. I am from Intermountain Healthcare, and I should, you know, maybe explain that type of delivery model. It is um, it's a fairly large uh, healthcare system, primarily in the state of Utah, and it's uh, a vertically integrated uh, system. So there are hospitals, there are clinics, there are employed physicians, the physical therapists are employed, and it has its own payer system that's integrated into it. And so as physical therapists, we work like many people do in the United States where uh, patients are referred to us from physicians. In the state of Utah, we, we do have direct access, so on occasion, we see patients who come in directly without physician referral. And in a nutshell, that's the environment uh, that I come from. And I'd like to take the opportunity to introduce Dr. Anthony, or Tony Delito from the University of Pittsburgh, Dr. Alan Jetty from Boston, from Boston University, Dr. Colleen Keegan from Massachusetts General Hospital, and Dr. Gail Dial from the U.S. Military Army. Um, and what I'd like to do in the beginning is to give each of the panel members an opportunity to uh, start off by describing what setting they're coming from so that that can be uh, taken in the context of how the discussion evolves from that point. I'm uh, Tony Delito, and, and most of you probably know me as the chair of the PT department at the University of Pittsburgh, but I bring table here nothing with regard to that appointment. Um, what I bring to the table more is my role uh, with our clinical services, uh, the Centers for Rehab Services, which is uh, the major provider of physical therapy services for the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And that entity has now, is now the largest employer in the state of Pennsylvania with over 40,000 employees. What I also have a role in is the payer. We're self-insured on both of, our, uh, both of our workers' comp as well as our commercial product. We're self-insured with, with the UPMC health plan. And I serve as a consultant to the UPMC health plan on their musculoskeletal subcommittee. Uh, it's a provider-led health plan, and we have a lot of influence on uh, uh, how... Um, on, on guidelines and so forth, as well as uh, some initiatives trying to take advantage of reform. Uh, our environment is predominantly uh, what I would like to refer to as more of an extender environment. Most of our services right now are delivered by referral from a physician. Um, we have a growing market in the area of, of uh, self-referral, 
Um, but most importantly, we have a very enlightened payer who is very interested in trying to uh, develop other models of care. Colleen? I'm Alan Jetty, and um, as Gerard said, I'm at Boston University in the School of Public Health where I direct a research institute focused on health and disability. And I, I think where I uh, relate to the topic that's being discussed today is the work that I've been doing over the years in outcomes measurement and the assessment and evaluation of the quality of uh, care that's being provided. And I and my colleagues uh, in our research institute uh, consult with a large number of both provider groups and payer entities around the country around issues of trying to evaluate and demonstrate the value of care that's being provided um, to our patients. And I think that's the perspective that I will bring to this panel discussion this morning and how we can best evaluate the where we are providing value uh, in the healthcare arena. My name is Colleen Keegan, and I come with two backgrounds for this panel. Uh, one is I had the privilege to chair the planning committee for PASS, the summit that the House of Delegates asked the profession to have that would help us identify how to meet the needs of society. And out of that summit were ideas on innovation, new models of practice, new areas of research. So I will offer some comments in terms of what that group feels we need to consider as we move to the future of practice and change, changing models. I also serve as chief of staff for a group that's called CIMIT. It's a center that does innovation in terms of new devices and systems and procedures. It includes 14 institutions across Boston that are the major teaching hospitals and the major universities such as Northeastern, MIT, BU, with the focus of bringing clinicians and engineers together to bring forward new innovation to change the delivery of care and the outcome of care with the focus on the patient. So I will offer some comments on what we call living laboratories, how to design new practice models for particular settings and some of the results. Good morning. I'm Gail Dial and I'm a uh, retired from active duty uh, Army physical therapist and uh, my experience has been about a 30-year effort working primarily as a, a direct access provider and uh, throughout that period of time I've maintained credentials which allows me to uh, directly access uh, a broad spectrum of patients on a direct access or referral basis. I also have privileges to uh, order a variety of musculoskeletal imaging procedures to prescribe limited medications, to make dispositions on patients. Uh, to make referrals, to limit the amount of training that they do, and uh, to communicate directly with uh, unit commanders. Currently, I am, uh, as a retired person, working uh, within a fellowship at Brook Army Medical Center. Um, I'm a professor with Baylor University Graduate School, and uh, primarily I spend my day either seeing patients or training our fellows. Okay, thank you very much. I'd like to start off the discussion uh, by having Alan Jetty uh, perhaps talk about how in physical therapy we trade value and where we show value. <laughs> I well, you by that's referred huh? to as a curveball. <laughs> Thank Catch you, Gerard. Catch it. Pardon? Catch it. Yeah. 
Thanks, Gerard. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Remember, payback. <laughs> okay, um, I will start out by um, sharing a, a few thoughts that I have on this, this issue. And um, as we planned the panel discussion today, I started thinking about, well, how do we, as a profession, plan for a lot of the changes that are coming forward in the healthcare reform bill that's recently been passed. Um, you know, how is physical therapy going to best position itself going forward? There are a lot of people and a lot of professions that are going to be jockeying for position. And whether we are trying to promote ourselves as physi physician extenders, such as the model that Tony is talking about uh, at Pitt, or um, as more independent practitioners, such as the model that um, Colleen will talk about and that uh, Gail's talked about, it seems to me one of the issues that we're going to have to really aggressively address is how do we demonstrate to the larger society that what we do as physical therapists has value within the large uh, healthcare arena. I think we've made a lot of progress over the past 10, 20 years in that respect. I mean, we have a foundation of research expertise in our field today that uh, 20 years ago, I, I think very few of us would have anticipated that we could have come so far in such a short period of time. And um, I think we're very well poised to take the next step, and, and that is to, on a much larger scale than we've been able to do to date, is begin to launch research initiatives that are going to allow us to truly evaluate where we're having the most value and the most impact in the health of the population in this country. I think there are some good examples and small um, uh, illustrations of where that's being done in our field today, but I don't think we've yet gotten to the point, from my perspective, where we're doing that on a large enough scale to really have an impact uh, as we move into healthcare reform in the United States in the coming years and decades. So from my perspective, as a researcher in, interested in uh, evaluating quality of healthcare, to position ourselves as a profession, it seems to me we have to become much more aggressive now that we have a strong foundation in research expertise. We have the people, the personnel, we've got the, the, uh, the institutions in place. I think we really need to go to the next level and really begin to um, get the money to launch some major uh, evaluation initiatives to um, identify where it is as a profession we're truly having an impact and uh, as well identify the areas where we're not, where we need to develop more uh, effective and more innovative uh, interventions and where we need to maybe stop emphasizing um, care in areas that are not as effective. So let me start there. Well, um, I'd, I'd like to take issue with something that Alan just mentioned about um, our, our research uh, uh, infrastructure. And um, uh, I, I wonder if we have uh, built the army that we need <laughs> for this kind of work. Uh, Two or three years ago, before I, I dove into starting to do some of this work that was related to cost effectiveness and terms like cost minimization, cost effectiveness research, 
was pretty foreign to me, in spite of the fact that I had a pretty extensive research background. Um, and the kind of work that needs to be done in this area, in the area of, uh, that we all call health economics right now, is an area that I'm not sure we've really, we have the army we need to go into this kind of work. Um, it's, I know that we're scrambling, and it's something that I think we really need to look at from the standpoint of uh, um, um, you know, prioritization and so forth uh, of, of how we come forward with that, with that level of expertise. Um, and I, and I, I guess I would, uh, I, I'm, I'm saying all this not to be critical of the phenomenal job that we've done, you know, raising the researchers that are out there now. I don't mean to make it sound as though we, we've been misguided or anything else. I think we've done a great job and the foundation has been a big part of that. And, and the people's accomplishments, our, our researchers' accomplishments at the NIH has, has, has been lauded by many, many, many people. I'm just <clears throat> bringing it up from the standpoint of saying, you know, this is a component that I think we really need, that we really need to think about, do we have the, 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 uh, the army in place, as I said. My, uh, my question for both of you then would be, uh, so given this situation, Alan, where would you point us toward to uh, w what are the areas that we need to go into um, in order to, to establish and demonstrate value? What are people looking for? What are people looking for? What, People could be many levels, government, uh, administration, um, patients. Well, I'll just give one example. Uh, in the recent um, ARRA funding initiatives, the federal government has set aside a huge chunk of money for comparative effectiveness research. And there's probably more money available today to look at and to evaluate the relative value of different healthcare interventions than certainly in the time that I've been doing research. And um, both within the uh, um, Agency for Healthcare uh, Research and Quality uh, and also within the NIH and in other federal entities, there is a substantial amount of money that has been set aside directly for a comparative effectiveness research. So from my perspective, as a physical therapist interested in trying to better demonstrate the value of care that we are providing, it seems to me that strategically we should be positioning ourselves to get heavily involved in, some, in using some of that money, to, to put it bluntly, so that we can really begin to better um, establish the, the value of the kinds of services that we provide to our patients. With respect to Tony's point about whether or not we've um, really developed the, um, the right cadre of uh, researchers, and he in particular points out the health economics uh, issue, there's no question we, we have a long ways to go. I'm looking at it from where we started. Um, and uh, 20 years ago, we wouldn't even be uh, players in the area of comparative effectiveness 
And today we do have the, uh, the talent and the expertise uh, around the country and worldwide in physical therapy that I think we could compete extremely effectively uh, in, in these and in other arenas. And we've shown that. I mean, if you look at the federal funding uh, from the NIH and other federal agencies, physical therapists have been extremely effective in securing funding over the past 10, 15 years. So I think we've come a long ways. And uh, in the areas where we don't have the expertise, I mean, you, you either, um, I mean, the way one does research today in, in the United States is you collaborate, you do transdisciplinary research. So we don't all have to become health economists, we just have to become really good at finding the health economists and getting them interested in the work that we're interested in doing and pulling them into our research projects so we have the right expertise. There's no question we have to have those kinds of expertise. But for me, a health economist is no different than a biostatistician. And I don't have to become a biostatistician. I just have to be able to find the right biostatistician to work with me and find the right health economist. So. Great. That's where I would go. Colleen? And thank you, Al, for saying that I think it, it is essential we look at interdisciplinary teams and using the talents of others that maybe we're not used to pulling into such research projects. But I also think perhaps it's time to consider some things we could think about internally. And that is, as more and more systems move to electronic medical records, there is a huge database being accumulated. And yet, we still do not have standardized language or terminology so that we can access that data retrospectively and understand the power of what our outcomes are or how we look at ourselves. Okay. I think um, still left with the question of uh, conceptually what are the categories or the domains that will, uh, that physical therapists should be thinking about even in their daily care as to what demonstrates value and how do we capture it and how do we communicate it? And that, to me, there's a continuum. There's a continuum from the daily note all the way to the database mining, the electronic record, and the research report. I, and so um, where do you see the, the, uh, the important focus of the domains that we really need to address and make sure that we're couching our argument in that framework? Anyone? I think the, the, the key component and this is one of the reasons why um, we tried to put a spectrum together of people representing different models. If you if you are very narrow scoped and look at and look at it uh, and look at a model of a you know my clinic, my referred patients, and all of the rest of the referred patients we bring together, you you get some valuable information. And and I I fully agree with Colleen's comment that you only it's only valuable if there's a standard and people can combine that information and it really is meaningful across. Uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, a, that's something that if you look at the picture over there in the corner of, of uh, Dr. Rothstein and you, I think I, I remember hearing one time that his, it was Jules M. Rothstein and I think it was Gary Soderberg who thought that, his, that the M stood for measurement. <laughs> and, um, 
and, and the key component there is that uh, we do have to have standards. The only way these that the, the, that combining data together works, no matter what model you're in, is if there's standards. So we clearly have that as a high priority, I think. But the other part of it is, um, when you're thinking about this, is is to expand our our our, our thought process away from our clinical setting to make sure that we can capture some of the very important information from other areas. And, and the one area that I'm most, I'm very interested in is cost. And the other, so, so, so we do have to be able to take information from our settings and combine it with information from other databases that would include costs, if we're ever gonna get to the issue of costs. Because the only thing we really have in our, our specific settings is the cost of physical therapy, and even then, it's it's difficult to get to. It's a charge based, and you know, and so forth. So, so that's one area that that's 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 important. The other part of it is is related to these models we're talking about. <clears throat> On a referral based physical therapy practice, you can think of the data you would be collecting. Uh, that would be very meaningful to, for example, demonstrate the correct process of care. When you, when you go to Gale's setting, which is the other, uh, an extreme, that data set needs to expand quite a lot um, because he's operating in a system that is where, where much more responsibility is put onto him. And although it looks as though it's, it, it, it could be more difficult, the other component of it is, is there potentially more value to the physical therapy in that setting? It, not that there's no value in the referral-based setting, but is there actually more value to, to what the physical therapist is, is providing in Gale's setting? And, and if there is, how do you capture that? How, what, what goes into the database to capture that, that, that contribution that therapists make? Um, so that, that, that would be, I, I mean, from a conceptual standpoint, these are the things I think you have to think about when you think about what goes into the database itself. Yes, I'd, I would be suspicious that the, the strongest value that we would bring in a, in a similar model and, and the emerging evidence and the evidence that's been somewhat spotty over the years is process-based. And I think we have to be careful that we're not somehow pulled into that if we can't demonstrate we have a better outcome with lower back pain, then we shouldn't be involved in the management of low back pain. And, Dr. Deo spoke last year at our Bayon conference and, and just spent hours describing this train wreck of physician management of lower back pain, of you know, overutilization of imaging and invasive procedures and so forth. And then, you know, and again, towards the end, just kind of shook his head and said, but you know, physical therapists, it's not been demonstrated that they have a, a better outcome with lower back pain, so therefore there's no change. And and that's, you know, it's the process, I think, and every point where we have looked at physical therapists managing musculoskeletal problems, they have shown to decrease the utilization of imaging, they've had equal outcomes, they've been diagnostically accurate, and that is definitely the pathway of less risk for the patient. And so regardless, and I think in a lot of cases like NEOA or shoulder problems, there is clear evidence for benefit. Some things like lower back pain that we're struggling to figure out who the populations are that we're successful with. It isn't going to be outcomes-based, but it should be process-based. And I think we're doing really well in the process of managing these patients. 
So I'd just like to broaden the discussion, too, to where we may need to think in the future about what, when we're part of a team that's delivering care to a patient and how that will complicate some of how we measure outcome, but some of the goals that these groups have. And let me just give one example. Out of the past summit, we talked about the fact that the patient is surrounded by a variety of caregivers, and they are the team that is focused on the individual needs of that patient. And that group of practitioners lives in a certain community and revolves around certain societal rules, reimbursement, et cetera. And the focus is continually on what are we doing to make a difference to the patient. And um, I think we need to keep wrestling with ourselves. How do we look at the outcomes to these patients as a member of a team who is organized around, increasingly we hope, and focused on looking at the needs of the patient no matter what the setting and no matter what the state of their care is. And this includes a care of practitioners that takes care of that patient when they're admitted, when they're at home, and moving technology and information base out of the practice setting into the home so we have continuous feed of information. There is a, I'll just give a short example of a practice model that's being tried here in Boston And it will challenge us as to measure results. Uh, Mass General, too, is self-insured. And we had uh, issues with how are we meeting the needs of our patients? We also had huge, huge issues of are we meeting the needs of our clinicians? As you know, primary care physicians are feeling like they are absolutely swamped with need of people wanting their services, of understanding and feeling they need to broaden their team to deliver that care, and what is the model they put together. So there will be an opening of what's called the ambulatory practice of the future, and it is team-organized, not physician-led. And the team is comprised of physicians, nurse practitioners, Um, uh, care advisors or counselors, physical therapists coming into that practice at targeted dates because they don't have a complement or panel that requires at this moment a physical therapist there full time. Those teams are going to be organized in this new practice setting in the old model of a nursing station. Nobody has a private office. They don't get to sort of go into their office in between seeing patients. They all collate to where the computers and the other practitioners are. Any one of that team can answer a call from a patient, can look at um, um, an, an email from that patient, or look at physiologic data being gathered in the home. And they are going to look at outcomes that include patient satisfaction, clinician satisfaction, cost, and quality. And the initial people in this practice will all be employees of Mass General because Mass General is a self-insured group, so we don't have to worry about reimbursement models. It's being blown right out of the water. And the outcomes of this complement or panel that will start with 1,200 per team, they'll have about seven or 8,000 patients in this practice are covered by this practice as compared to the other 20,000 individuals that work at Mass General. And looking at outcomes of did they decrease hospitalization needs Is there a focus on wellness? Are those with diabetes not being admitted? Are they losing weight? Are they exercising, et cetera? So the outcomes will be measures of the team input to this patient, and it'll be more difficult to ferret out each team's role. On the other hand, Mass General doesn't really care about each team member's role. They care about did the team make a difference, and can this team collaborative make a difference with the patient? I think we see um, something similar at Intermountain Healthcare at uh, 
what we would describe as the clinical program level where you have various uh, professionals uh, interacting to care for the patient in a primary care setting, uh, whether it's a, an advanced practice in mental health, a diabetes educator, primary care doc, and physical therapists are in these buildings, but we're like leasers. We're not necessarily fully integrated, although the integration happens on an informal basis. However, I know what they struggle with here is, and the lever that's being pushed is, okay, how do we roll this up and get paid for it? Um, because at, at some point, someone's paying for something. And we've heard uh, the whole concept of bundled payments. Um, and I think about, and I'm trying to bring this back to the healthcare reform debate, I think about, okay, when we get down the road toward whether it's bundled payment, global pay, whatever it is, bundled payment is the term now, how are we going to unpackage that? And where does physical therapist uh, sit? And that gets back to articulating our role in terms of determining value. You know, how, how do we make the argument that we're helping? Um, which is what Alan was addressing. But it, it re so what I'd like to turn this toward is as we develop these models, um, where are we as a profession in terms of flourishing and adding value so we're at the table determining that um, we need to be compensated appropriately for that if we're moving away from fee-for-service. I'm making that assumption. We're assuming that this healthcare reform is going to happen. Okay. I think I, I, this really is the challenge in my mind. <clears throat> um, and I'll, I'll give you an example of, of something that's in the area that, I, I, that, we're, trying to, that we're struggling with right now at, at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, low back pain has become the third largest cost bucket for us to manage, um, which is, and, there's, and we're, not like, we're not unlike everybody else, I think, in the country. It's, it's a disproportionate amount of money being spent to manage people with low back pain. When someone mentions bundle payments, <clears throat> I know that a lot of people get, are, I mean, I know this for a fact. There are people in this audience that are really afraid of that, that term, bundle payments. If, if you think of bundled payments as, well, here's what we spent on physical therapy last year. Here's the average per case. That's your payment. I would be scared, too. <laughs> that would be. But if you think of a bundled payment in a different way, and that's you take all of the money that's spent to manage low back pain, which includes all the unnecessary imaging, all of the unnecessary pharmacology, and so forth, all of the, 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 the components that make up the disproportionate amount of money being managed. And then you ask the question, we're gonna bundle the payment and pay according to the value that whatever provider brings to the table, then that's a target of opportunity. Now that's a huge conceptual leap to get to that point. But when people talk about realigning finances and, 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 and distributing the payment accordingly, I think it really has a, the, the one component we have to be thinking about are these different models we practice in. And the value you bring to the table when uh, more and more of our expertise is called upon to manage the patient in an appropriate way, 
assuming that we are bringing value to the table, uh, and then how, how are you compensated for that in the proper way, and how is that realigning of the finances taking place? Obviously, from the payer's perspective, the cynics in the audience would say, well, from the payer's perspective, that's what they wanted all the time in the first place, so that'll just mean they pay less for the care. And, of course, more enlightened views might be there might be some shared components, some shared uh, savings here. And how does that get distributed? That's really a critical question right now. So I'm going to just support the concept, too. As we look at costs and look at outcomes of care, we need to look at the whole episode of care. And it needs to include all the imaging, all the tests, all the potential surgeries. Everything has to be looked at. And we're going to have to start looking at our data and working with collaborators in a way that allows the aggregate of the cost of a complement of low back patients in practice X as compared to a new model of practice and practice Y and have that comparative analysis or I think we will miss how we articulate our own value. The actual cost for physical therapy could easily increase. However, the actual outcome of returning to work function and lack of needed for surgery and hospitalization will go appreciably down. So I think we really have to focus on that larger complement of uh, data. So, so comparing the cohorts yes. and looking. And I would argue that, uh, in supporting Gail's point, that I don't know that outcomes are that necessary. Just process sometimes is, is a good first step to take. In other words, if you assume the outcomes are no worse, are you spending a lot less money managing patients this way? You know, that, you know from the standpoint, let's say, for example, you, you shift the emphasis in back pain from a model like we're practicing in right now, where most of the people with back pain are referred to us and have already gone through the unnecessary imaging, have already gone through uh, all of the things that are... And you shift to a model like Gale's and, and, you, and you reduce the amount of unnecessary imaging and so forth that goes on. Uh, that in and of itself, I think, is very positive... Uh, a study that would be a very positive study, and I think that's what you meant about process, right, Gil? Exactly. But I but I also think we have to be careful how this is set up, and I don't know how the different models that have been described, what privileges the physical therapist will have, and and that makes a key difference. If if we're looking at the process of physical therapy management, but somehow these patients still have the same access to their primary care manager who may still be making these same uninformed decisions on imaging or you know, getting other people collaboratively involved with the patient and so forth, you're going to wind up with the same result and the same cost. And it's with the physical therapist has the privileges they need to manage the patient. And, and I think that's where perhaps some of the challenges are going to come. And I talked with Tony yesterday, and, you know, by order, we were talking about what privileges did I value the most. And, you know, first of all was my access to imaging. Second was my access to laboratory tests. Third was my access to be able to make referrals. You know, if I found a skin lesion on someone that I think is important, I don't want to send them back to primary care. I want to be able to send them to a dermatologist, and I want that evaluated and, and definitively treated. And, and I think that's where the streamlining really comes from. And if we have to loop all these patients back through these same people, we're going to find that all these same things in the end wind up being done. And you're just, you know, you're just kind of become an ancillary service. I'd like to pick up on Tony and Gail's point about focusing on process. 
I'll acknowledge that looking at process is not a bad way to begin, but I think we're putting ourselves at great risk if we stop there, because ultimately the people who pay the bill want to know whether or not there's any value provided in the services that we provide to patients, such as low back pain patients. And, and Deo is a perfect example. He's talking about the train wreck of low back pain treatment, but he includes physical therapy as part of that train wreck. Uh, I've listened and, re and read uh, Rick Deo's stuff. He's very skeptical about whether or not physical therapy really provides value in the treatment of low back pain patients. And we can talk about process to we're blue in the face, but that's not going to really establish the value of what services we provide for certain kinds of patient groups. It seems to me we've got to take the risk as a profession to look beyond process to actually look at the outcome of the services that we provide to these kinds of patients. I realize that there's risk in that. That's why I like to think about it in terms of a comparative effectiveness uh, approach. Um, you know, the model that you're describing, Gail, I would love to see a study comparing that model head-to-head -head against other more um, traditional models of care, but not on a process uh, evaluation point of view, but from an outcome point of view. Are the outcomes and the costs, how do they compare to other models of care? It seems to me that's where we have to go. We've got to be um, willing to take the risk to ask those questions, to really do these kinds of head-to-head uh, -head comparisons. If we're going to position ourselves successfully in the uh, evolving healthcare um, reform arenas. My, if I can jump in, my sense of this would be that they need not be mutually exclusive. I think there's an assessment that needs to take place in terms of the process of care, because the greatest threat to achieving the outcome and driving up cost is when we have huge variability related to how the process of care is being delivered. And I would argue that as we reduce the variability in the delivery of care, the care process, we also reduce the cost. That's been demonstrated time and again, maybe not so much in physical therapy, although we have published some work related to that. So it's not only looking at the value in terms of the clinical outcome, the uh, disability improvement, but it's also, can we link that to a change in how we delivered the care, that the care was um, the practice behavior of the clinician, uh, and what happened with the interprofessional behavior, how they manage the patient, if that, that care process also relates to it. I don't think it's one or the other. I think they're tied. I think we also have an opportunity because the House passed a motion that talked about engaging and communicating with the primary care community. And I think that pushes what are the practice models that we should talk to them about what is the research that we should talk to them about, and what are the measures of outcome. And I think we can proactively move ahead and engage that kind of conversation with logical collaborators that are feeling the need and feeling overwhelmed by the care they're trying to deliver and the 
I think I was in the back of the house, but I think the final uh, wording on the motion was uh, primary care providers in a broad sense that would allow us to connect with an, any number of uh, professionals that do that. But I think we should proactively think how do we take best advantage of establishing those collaborations and looking at outcome. I, I, um, I, I, I don't disagree that we should look to collaborate with primary care. Here's my concern. <laughs> Um, when you look at, and I, I, when you lump primary care already in the environment of primary care, you have a field that, for the most part, realizes it's in deep trouble from the standpoint of having the capacity to serve what the public expects them to do. Um, you look at students in training, and the last choice most of them want to do right now is go into primary care. You look at the proliferation right now of the extender called the physician's assistant, the physician's assistant. And then you look at the reluctance on the part, the historical reluctance on the part of primary care to embrace other health professionals in their environment, such as the nurse practitioner, such as the pharmacist and others, to really fully embrace those people and allow them the access, uh, allow them to bring to the table their, their knowledge and skill and in a participatory way. It makes me a bit skeptical going into, uh, into a, a collaboration such as that. Now, perhaps by sheer necessity, they're going to have to have a different attitude, a different role. And I do believe that part of the issue is demonstrating our value. I mean, I think the other component of this is demonstrating value. Um, uh, and, and you certainly have more of a foot, a leg to stand on by demonstrating value. But I wonder if, if um, well, I just, I, I'll bring it up and I'll stop there. This is what, this is what my concern is. <clears throat> what are the, oh, go ahead. We have, uh, again, just a, a number of different of experiences that have occurred, different situations, and despite the fact we have this, this more than 30-year track record of having functioned as these direct access providers that are fully credentialed as any other provider within the, the military health system is, many different ways that this has been utilized. Our experience with directly with primary care, has, has they have not been as accepting as what a person might think. And um, we have only fairly recently inserted some physical therapists working directly within primary care clinics and and even though you know at certain times from the from the even from the civilian side one of the directors of the residency programs came to to, to my physical therapy clinic talked to me and said you know our residents are not skilled in musculoskeletal management uh, we've tried associating them with orthopedics. That doesn't work very well. We would like to have them come rotate through physical therapy and work with your um, people that are in training and, and, and your staff therapists and see if we can't elevate our level of musculoskeletal care. That was very successful. But also, even within our own primary care, when we approach them and try to put physical therapists working directly within their clinics, I mean, the first thing, despite all the evidence, suggests they're not very competent in the management of musculoskeletal problems. They'll say, 
you know, are you suggesting that we don't do a good job in our management? I mean, and what evidence do you have? And, and certainly we have limited evidence that shows that their diagnostic competencies, you know, are not great in musculoskeletal management and they overutilize certain resources. But it was a struggle. Now, once we had the people inserted into these clinics, they were very accepting. And I mean, and then it was immediate, and then within a week, you know, the staff was taking their shirts off and wanting you to look at their back and so on and so forth. I mean, it was just, they realized how much they were missing, and then just anecdotally, I mean, from each one of these places where a physical therapist had that role, probably within a 30-day period, a half dozen patients with serious undiagnosed conditions are pulled out of that, that the, the physical therapist sees and realizes these are people with metastatic lesions, these are people with you know, other forms of systemic disease, you know, and again, just totally unrecognized, undiagnosed fractures, you know, so on and so forth that, again, are just being seen over and over again in a very brief visit and then kind of pushed off and imaging not being based on a competent exam, wrong areas are imaged, and so on and so forth. So. I think that you know, once we've gotten our foot in the door, primary care has learned of our value. But I, it, was, it was much harder than I would have suspected to get our foot in the door. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, we're, we're thinking about now the, the barriers to establishing those relationships um, and our, our identity crisis as physical therapists that we think as professional people and we behave that way. All that being considered, it doesn't get away from the fact that you have to have this personal interaction where you treat people with honesty and consideration in how you talk to them because you can say the wrong thing and turn you know, a physician or a therapist off by how you uh, interact with them. But our sense, I, I see patients three mornings a week in a primary care family practice building and interact with these primary care docs. And, and when we look at the data, there are some buildings where the primary care docs refer patients to physical therapy, not only more patients, but more faster. And we're always saying, why is that? Part of it does have to do with the physician's background, uh, maybe experiences they've had in the past with uh, physical therapists. But, you know, the point I'm driving at is you can't get away from uh, contacting the doc in your community. If, if you're in a private practice, there's lots of clinicians here that are on the street working. You know, it really depends on how we contact that physician, how we couch the questions, how we get the job done, so that the process of care is the right process of care and, um, and being set up so that in the future, people trust each other's judgment interprofessionally as opposed to, I'm just going, yeah, I mean, I grew up long enough ago where you just followed the prescription, you know, and that was, uh, I went through a winter of discontent at about 30 years old saying, is this why I studied so hard to, to read this prescription? Because I could think of things differently to do. So one other thing I think we need to think about is um, it does take, it is all built on relationships uh, mm -hmm. on many levels. And I think we have to continue to work with our um, uh, programs of physical therapy, educating our new clinicians to look at innovative models where they train with other professions. And they interact on a regular basis as they're moving into the clinic with other professions who are also in training. 
And I know that a number of our leaders of educational programs are thinking about this. The one study I was struck by was out of the UK, where they took physios, nurses, and physicians, and they put them on the same rotation clinically. So the physios had to take a a day shift or an evening shift or a night shift along with their other colleagues and they had faculty members with them but the outcomes were quite striking in terms of the recognition of the role of each and the articulation of the individual role of that trainee in relation to the team but I think we're going to have to move way down to that interaction of collaborative teams that happens within educational models as well as practice. I think the, the critical component here, again, though, is um, going back to how do you demonstrate value? You know, how do you propose that as we do all of this interacting and we change our models and we move forward, presumably, I, I'm thinking that, and, and maybe perhaps I'm wrong about this, but I'm thinking that in targeted areas, we are probably going to demonstrate higher value than if we just wait for those patients to come to us in a more passive manner. And we conceptually can think of ourselves as having higher value. How do we demonstrate it, I guess, is the real key component. How do we demonstrate it? I like your idea, Colleen, of, of, of the, taking advantage of some of the diversity we have already, some of the models and some of the that are already implanted that have presumed value. I mean, for some reason or another, we may, we've convinced ourselves to come to be put at the table and and participate in these alternative models. I think it's critical that in these places that exist that we think about how it is we're going to demonstrate value. Uh, we just can't settle for, you know, these therapists are really great. We really yeah, like absolutely. them, and they do a good job with us. And, you know, well, I'm so glad they're here. And then when everything's all said and done, you know, there's no real substantiation of the, of the value you really brought to the table, which I think can be, can be, um, uh, it can be significant. So is there any argument that we need an infrastructure to measure? Uh, the various components that we would deem appropriate to demonstrate value. And so we look at the different models and for example, uh, Gail, the military having all that license uh, credentials to do the types of things, you know, is there an infrastructure where they measure that and can begin to tell us what the value of that is? And, and I'm thinking of, you know, what, as physical therapists, what are the barriers that you're having to begin to systematically collect information that will get at this question of measuring value? Now, I was in a meeting this morning where the American Physical Therapy Association, facilitated by the orthopedic section, is trying to work out a way that we can nationally provide an opportunity to uh, have a database where clinicians and practices can collect data. But what's happening in the military? Because that's a, a great model. <laughs> I mean, we have had um, a, a number of data gathering efforts which have resulted in primary retrospective analysis of practice patterns. and. And um, you know, some of the people in the audience here have been responsible for summarizing some of that. Um, and basically, that, that experience shows about a 50% decrease in utilization of musculoskeletal imaging if a physical therapist was who you primarily accessed. Um, 
Again, we had some publications in JOSPT a few years ago by Joe Moore where they retrospectively analyzed about a half a million uh, patient visits and found, um, you know, about half of which were primary access visits, but uh, no unwarranted action of any kind, no, no credentials actions against any provider that was involved in that, um, nothing that would demonstrate that there was uh, any diagnostic uh, incapability. Uh, they've done some comparisons between pre-MRI, pre-imaging diagnosis to post-MRI um, diagnosis of orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists, and non-orthopedic physicians. And physical therapists were found to be um, greatly superior to physicians of all specialties other than orthopedics and uh, equal to orthopedic physicians. But that was, I mean, just purely the physicians. When you compare them to everyone else who typically sees patients in an orthopedic clinic, the orthopedic PA and orthopedic nurse practitioner, um, physical therapists were superior than everyone else diagnostically. So, I mean, that's... If you get beyond that, I mean, you're going to, it's very quickly going to be resources that are above and beyond. Um, you know, I mean, I'm someone that's done a lot of outcomes research. I've done all of that with um, no grant money whatsoever, right. the time to write grants and so forth. I mean, I see patients, I train fellows, you know, I work long hours, and, you know, doing anything more would, would it would require other people, you know, and additional resources. And those, those resources do not exist within our system. Okay. You know what I'd like to do now, if it's okay with the panel, with your consent, is uh, I'd like to bring the audience into this a little bit more. And um, excuse me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm in charge now. Okay. <laughs> so, if there are people who have comments or questions or uh, would like to stir things up, please come. And let me remind you, we're being recorded. It would really be nice to. <laughs> State your name and, and where you're from. Thanks. Um, my name is Patrick Dedine. Um, I work in a, a global Fortune 100 uh, company in tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. Uh, one of the issues we struggle with in developing new interventions for musculoskeletal uh, pathologies, we spend a lot of time with engineers, scientists, clinicians, surgeons. And then once we start organizing design a clinical trial, we have to figure out the rehabilitation program. And then it's a big black box. So my question to the panel is, is that, and I'm sure Jules Rothstein, um, uh, who I've heard you know, years ago, uh, was of the same mind, is to come up with some kind of standardization, some kind of standard of care. And we're not the only ones struggling with that. In surgery, they have different circular mm -hmm. approaches based on training, uh, cultural background, geographies. But we need to come to some agreement that um, if you have this pathology with those inclusion criteria, that if you do this type of treatment, rehabilitation treatment, that that is the expected outcome. And, and coming to some kind of standardization, uh, that will provide value because value is ultimately a dollar amount, an amount of time. Um, and I think where is the field now, what is our profession now in, the, in, in regard to developing a standard of care? I, I can respond to that. Um and other people can jump in. I, I think we, my own sense from looking at the data at Inner Mountain um, and suspecting what goes on in the community, there's tremendous variability of care. And it drives the cost up and it lowers the quality of the care. And um, you can do very simple things 
to bring the control limits in and to narrow how the patient is getting treated. And, and now, you know, we do that by academic detailing, clinical improvement types of meetings, uh, you know, teaching. But it's a problem, and the feedback loop is really um, the infrastructure to collect outcomes data and bring it back, uh, feed it back to clinicians so that it's in a form that they can look at and understand, they think it's justified, it's detailed enough, they believe it, and then begin to look for who's doing better in the system, let's go talk to them about their process of care. And that is, that's tremendous commitment and it's tremendous time spent. But it's where this profession, I believe, is and how we need to move forward. And we're starting to get that type of research uh, published. I think there's some efforts in the, um, uh, I think the orthopedic section is a, is a good example of the effort to, first of all, um, put forth a conceptual model for standardizing care in the form of guidelines, which is the currency that everyone's out there and talking about. Um, one of the problems in physical therapy, and I don't want to use it as an excuse, but it is a, it is a legitimate issue, is that uh, for many of the things we treat, there isn't a magic pill. There isn't a magic approach. There, there, is, there is some level of warranted variability in care based on seeing patients who are acute, transitioning those patients to subacute, and then returning them to activity, where you do change the things you do uh, while, while, you know, while the person's in the episode of care. So I think there are some, there, we've struggled with those and how to actually uh, maintain ourselves uh, as, as a evidence-based, with an evidence-based, follow the evidence-based rules, play with the currency, but at the same time come up with a way, uh, a mechanism of looking at things that allows us this, this um, ability to really capture what our practice is. I think when that's all said and done, uh, we will you have to realize that it's chaos out there now. We will bring in the limits, as Gerard talks about, and, and I think the point Colleen makes about actually coming up with these standardized data sets that are based on the guidelines, and then that will do its part to reduce the variability of care. There still won't be a protocol for treating somebody with back pain. There will be a number of things that you have to look at and categorization and things like that that are evidence-based, but it was a lot better than what's out there now, which is, which is chaos, I think. Charles Magistro. The other thing I want to mention, though, before we move on to Charles, is uh, there are a couple of research projects that I'm aware of where they're trying to uh, open that black box of rehabilitation and begin to standardize the uh, classification and recording of interventions being provided by uh, uh, physical therapists as well as other rehabilitation therapists. And these projects are funded by the National Institute of Disability and Rehabilitation Research. And so they've been trying to uh, really move that uh, effort forward uh, because it is a huge problem for the kind of research we've been talking about. Charles. Right behind you, right here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I have good information about all of these people who are speaking this morning. I can tell you seriously that I know them well and I know what they do and what they have done for this profession in the last 30 years. It is really enormous and uh, we would be nowhere if it hadn't been for their efforts. 
The thing that puzzles me a great deal is the fact that uh, we are dealing with a conundrum in this profession of ours, or a dilemma, if you will. Each of you have addressed the issue of variability in what happens and how physical therapists do things. And those of us who have spent a life in the clinic know why some physical therapists are more successful than others. Perhaps we can't identify that, but it is a variable that has to be taken very seriously because in spite of what we do sometimes, it's the person who does it that makes all the difference in the world. Unfortunately, this is our big cop-out and we use that to a great extent. We use it to our advantage sometimes and to our disadvantage. But the point that I'm making is that Gerard, Tony, uh, and, and uh, Alan, you guys are in a position where you can control some of this in your settings. And I know what you're doing at Intermountain. Tony, I know what you're doing at Pittsburgh. And you really are in a very enviable situation because you can oversee what's being done to patients, at least to a certain degree. But in the absence of that, the only way to make this final determination if what we do has value or does not have value is to eliminate it. Take us out of the picture completely and see what happens, how patients are doing in the absence of any treatment. Okay, then, Charles, well, that's good. We have a debate now. <laughs> Charles, let me give you my microphone here. <laughs> no, but in the absence of any treatment, make a decision then. We haven't treated any of these patients. And guess what? They haven't had all of the expensive testing. At least that's been proven up in the state of Washington. Yeah. And it was proven very effectively. And so Starbucks and Boeing are saving big bucks because they aren't doing any of this stuff. And guess what? The patients really haven't changed that much but both Star Starbucks and Boeing are a lot better off financially. So I guess maybe we should look at this very seriously. And the thing that's always bothered me about research, it's a two-edged sword. It might put you out of business or it might put you in business. But whatever it is, let's come to a decision in that regard because the foundation is spending enormous amounts of money on trying to settle this conundrum. So that's where I'm coming from. Ma okay? Thank you so much. What a, what a great comment, um, if it's okay. One of the things, we're trying to get at exactly that question of patients who have low back pain that never access physical therapy, what happens to them? And we're in the process of looking at that. You can imagine it's a big data mining thing. We have to interact with the um, payer arm of Intermountain, and there's lots of, you know, severity adjusting, different comorbid conditions, all that, you know, but we are trying to look at that, and, and that will be enlightening. Who goes to physical therapy, who doesn't go to physical therapy, and then what kind of outcomes can we measure for the people who don't get care in physical therapy? Because what's happened with the payer in our setting is we have gone to these meetings with the payer. We've demonstrated the clinical outcome. We can show them the difference in the scores. And we show them that we have half the number of visits, one third the number of visits compared to what's going on nationally. 
and we're shooting ourselves in the foot because they're, they're like, well, thank you very much. And that's it. You know, there's no harvesting back that savings. They've made the money and thank you. And you're just like every other doctor who tells us we get great outcomes. You know, that's sub-optimization. Okay, where well, you're doing a good job, you've got demonstrated quality, and they reap the reward. I, I don't want to say they don't care, but it feels like that. Um, any other reaction? Steve. Steve Wolf from Atlanta, Georgia. I um, echo Charles's uh, comments about the panel. Um, his uh, notion's an intriguing one. Uh, it is but one diagnosis among many that we treat. Not quite sure that the, uh, the solution would be uh, applicable to, to, um, to all diagnostic entities. But I am intrigued by something. I apologize for my misinterpreting the title of this discussion. But it, it just seemed to me that when one is talking about healthcare reform, which is a very active, dynamic process going on right now, it's not some secret entity that will occur sometime in the future. Um, when I see the word advantage of our existing models, that, that says to me, to what extent uh, can we, in these models, influence the presence of healthcare reform? And with all due respect, I'm not quite sure I heard that today. And, and I, I would like, if we have a few minutes for you to, to address that, uh, not in terms of generalities and, and of, of, of research, but direct impact, influence upon policies and procedures that are being enacted as we speak. I think Justin was in the back of the room and has left. But I think what we need to do is articulate um, some of these new uh, models of delivery in terms of where our role and impact is. And Steve, I don't know if I'm addressing this in a correct way for you, but from my perspective, to be willing to try some of these new models, whether it's with a team or a physical therapy group, and to measure the results and bring them to your local legislative bodies and your local legislative representatives, they will be so responsive to understanding that, first of all, you've identified a cohort of patients that you're dealing with, You've looked at a model or adapted a model or tried a new model, and you can bring them some outcomes or results from this. They actually will be remarkably responsive, even if the cohort that you've tried this with is quite small, because they will be struggling with enacting all the elements of this healthcare reform that will go between now, as you heard from Dashiell and 2020, I guess. I can't remember the exact outcome date of the final uh, action. And we have a huge opportunity as they bring up and look at initiating each part of this to influence and be part of the solution. And I know Justin and the APTA staff are up on the Hill a lot. I think they would welcome, and we need to have our voice and help uh, with them. And they probably need to know more about some of these models and outcomes that are happening so that they can use that as they advocate. Tony? I, I think um, uh, when, I, when I think of the term uh, take advantage, um, I'll go back to what I mentioned earlier. And we have right now um, uh, the start of, anyway, uh, initiation of different models. You've 
you've, in fact, in, in, in Gail's uh, example, it's not, this has been going on for quite a while. <laughs> but I think with the advent of reform, you're starting to even see more models being tried. And so there's going to be a diversity there. And from my perspective, it's going, by prospectively thinking about value and in some, in some manner quantifying what it, mean, what it is we mean by it, uh, not just from the standpoint of what our outcome's going to be, but also from the standpoint of what, what is it that we're, we're doing as a profession in this. And I know that sounds a little bit, you know, it, it takes away, it, it, in some ways, it, it, you know, we talk about team approach, and it's difficult to think, well, what's my individual contribution to that team? But as a profession, I think we have to do that. We have to do that. What is the contribution? I, I think that's what we ha that's what I mean that's what I think of when I see take advantage of of the of of the situation. And not only because of what we have here, what we found in a very short period of time, different models, but what's likely to be occurring in the next year to three years as people try to respond to reform, try to put mo different models of care in place. I mean, we saw, I think, last night, we, we're down a path that there's no turning back from. <laughs> and I think we're going to be, you know, uh, looked upon in many instances to, to be a part of, of team approaches with patients and things. And I think at this point in time, we need to, to look at that much more closely and be able to, there are things we know we have to do right now to do that. We know we have to have standardized data sets. We know we have, we, we just have to have them. Uh, it's no longer one of those issues where it's a, you know, a, a nice to have. It's going to be an absolute ne necessity to have. And we have to move forward with these things. Mary Fran. And then Mary. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> Mary Fran Delon, uh, Director of Practice APTA, and uh, just wanted to respond to Steve's question. We do have a project, Innovation uh, in Physical Therapist Practice, that looks at technology also on models of care delivery. The first step to that was to identify some models of care that we felt would fit the description and be able to, uh, we did a, a survey with them, we did an interview with them. Those models are currently up on the website, at least the first 15 or 17, and we are continually looking for uh, models that we can describe and look at things such as access to care, effectiveness, uh, efficiencies of care, etc. So we have started uh, doing that and, uh, again, have started at least describe them and look at some of the lessons that we can learn and then help others within the membership, within the profession to implement some of the successes that have been had. In addition, uh, myself and Mike Johnson co-chair an initiative within the realm of quality initiatives in physical therapist practice. And our hope is to, as Tony pointed out with the ortho section, is to take things such as the clinical practice guidelines that are in effect within our profession. And uh, we also do have an initiative to... Um, to promulgate some more clinical practice guidelines in other sections. But the quality initiatives, their primary goal is to take the evidence that is out there and to describe it well for the clinicians to then determine the process, the actions they need to do that will improve care and hopefully will improve outcomes in patient care. So we do have another a number of initiatives uh, ongoing that uh, are related to some of the wonderful points that our panel has brought up. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And then next thing. Hi. My name is Patsy Sinat, and I'm from uh, San Francisco. I work at the VA, and I just want to give 
return us to this original question, is, which is what do we need to get where we want to go? Not quite sure where we want to go yet, but um, in the VA, uh, research really takes on the, the original model of quality, which is that you look at structure, you look at process, you look at outcomes, you look at cost effectiveness, and then you look at implementation and implementation science. How do you take the things you learn um, and, and actually get them implemented? And so uh, as we're thinking about not all becoming biostatisticians, we need to keep this whole concept in mind that we need experts in structure or models and the organizational theories behind that. We need experts in process. We need experts in outcomes. And we need experts in cost effectiveness or health economics to help us get to first understand what's happening in our practice um, and then to show value in the practice. Great. Thank you. This will be the last uh, comment or question, and then we'll give everybody time to get to the next meeting. So it's unusual that I get the last word. Uh, yes. Roger Nelson. I, I want to thank everyone also. Roger Nelson with uh, Lebanon Valley College. And uh, I, I wanted to bring us back up to about 8,000 feet, uh, where policymakers, the insurance world, Medicare, and other groups are looking at it. And I call it the 97,000 code uh, conundrum. Uh, physical therapy is judged based <coughs> upon the 9,700 codes. And we know that there are people other than therapists that are providing and, and billing for these codes. So as long as the large companies, the, uh, the Workers' Comp uh, Research Institute for WCRI, for example, look at this and they say 24% of every dollar in the workers' comp world is spent on physical therapy. But again, they use this global term mm -hmm where we should be taking, and hopefully the APTA should be taking the role that physical therapy is that given by the skilled intervention of a physical therapist and not the physician that has some young man or some young woman flipping hamburgers and now putting hot packs on considered physical therapy. So this larger perspective of the 9700 code. The other thing is a, a, a wonderful book was written right across the river here by Porter and Teesburg and it's competition based on patient values. And I think one of the things that we forgot, or maybe I didn't hear mentioned in this, is, is the issue of the patient is eventually going to make the decision on where to go. And it's been, Porter and Teesburg talked a lot about the, the world of cystic fibrosis, and I believe it's done here, a lot here in, at uh, MGH, right, Colleen? Where 30, 40 years ago, they started this database where people had access to the database. And I think that's where the American Physical Therapy Association would be very good in being able to start to develop access to databases about patients, about providers, so that patients can access these provider databases and find the best physical therapist for their condition. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That concludes the Rothstein debate. Appreciate your attendance. Thank you for this